0: neighbor, you are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here! This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. This week, we started off the year in the very beginning of the Bible, with Jeff providing a message from Genesis chapter 1. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon.
1: We are starting something new today in a year-long sermon series called Long Story Short. Technically, it's an old thing. Because we're just reading the Bible hopefully we've all done that before right Uh, but we're doing it in a new way because we're all doing it together and one of our hopes is that we will all read the entire Bible this year but more importantly than reading the whole Bible the main challenge is going to be opening up the Bible on a daily basis not just a regular basis but every day letting the Word of God speak to us and change us more into the image of Jesus as we learn more about who God is. But here's a couple of problems. First, it's not going to be easy. I mean, the Bible is big and confusing sometimes, and we're already living such busy lives. We may already feel overwhelmed by all we have to get done in just one day. How are we going to add one more thing? But let me give you a word of advice. There are certain things you already do every day that have turned into habits that if you forgot or you weren't able to do, it would throw Your whole day off like brushing your teeth or eating breakfast taking a shower reading the paper checking your Twitter or Facebook feeds like we already have these habits that we're committed to and if one of them doesn't happen it feels like we've missed out on something so what if we committed to reading the Bible as a daily habit what if we needed it like we need breakfast that's the goal this year but the other problem is we we can't read it for you Like, we're gonna talk about the Bible on Sundays, and that's great, but you can't survive just eating one meal a week. That's why we've uploaded the website with resources like the reading plans, reading guides, uh, the YouVersion app, the Facebook group, videos, much more to come to help you succeed in this. We want you to succeed. And if you are just starting today, we're gonna go ahead and hit the reset button and say, nobody is behind. Uh, We just get to read a few extra chapters today so we can all be on the same page tomorrow. So who's ready? Are you ready? Now, this is really hard over the internet, but I imagine you are cheering and standing on your couch and clapping and throwing up your rock fists. So with that excitement in mind, should we start? Yes. Okay. Where should we start? Where should we begin this journey? Let's start at the beginning. That's a good plan. So take your Bible and see if you can find page one. That should be Genesis. This is the easiest turn your Bible to and find uh, ask ever. Just open up the front cover, get through the table of contents, or turn on your phone and press a couple of buttons. Genesis is the first book of a series of books called the Torah, or sometimes we, you might hear them called the Pentateuch, which is just, it's just a Greek term that means five books. But this year, you may hear the word Torah more often. And when you hear it, it will either mean the first five books of the bible or it could mean law or instruction depending on the context and so torah is made up of the first five books genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy and there's so much going on in these first five books but in order to get through the whole bible we're not going to be able to cover every story i mean imagine flying from new york to california in a plane the pilot he doesn't have time to point out and name every city that you see below, Uh, but the pilot may hit the big ones or the important landmarks. That's what our Sunday gatherings are going to be doing. And that's okay, because we know throughout the week, you are driving your car through every page and seeing every city and stopping to take pictures at every tourist location. Now, I don't know how you are in the plane and in the car at the same time. I don't know, hopefully my mixed analogy works, but Uh, if you'll drive the car, we'll fly the plane and we can travel together. So let's start. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, let's stop right there. Did you really think we were going to go much farther before we needed to stop? I mean, there's so much to say about just this one verse, but before we actually get into the text, we need to set up some parameters in order to be successful on this journey. So for instance. Uh, we're building a playset in our backyard. And one of the activities that we want to add is a twisty slide. The kids are really excited, but it came in this box and it required some assembly. So you pull out the instructions and here they are and it's like 10 pages of instructions. But before you get to step one, there's this page, which tells you the parts that are in the box, what tools you're gonna need. These are the preliminary instructions before you get to step one of actually building the thing. It's the manufacturer's way of making sure you are ready before you start building. So before we dive into the journey of long story short, I want to talk about some like preliminaries before we get to page one. These are some things that you should know about this thing that we're going to do if you're going to be successful. So here's some preliminary thoughts about the Bible. First of all, and this is huge, the Bible is not about us it's about God. Now this is a huge point. This can be very frustrating for many of us. Many of us, when we open the Bible, we come to it with this whole set of ideas about things that are going on in our life. Like, I don't know where I should go to school. I don't know if I should get married, or I don't know who I should get married to. Uh, I don't know where I should live or what I should do. And the Bible is surely going to give me the answers. It's going to help me with that, right? Well, I mean, you know, it doesn't provide us with the answers to specific issues about our life because it's not about us, it's about God. And that's a huge point right off the the bat. God is communicating to us about who he is. It's his revelation of who he is. The Bible does not seek to prove God's existence. It assumes God's existence. Like if I write you a letter, I'm not going to try and prove to you that I exist. I assume you already believe that. The Bible is not about us, it's about God. The second thing, before we even get going. The Bible is not written to us, but the Bible is written for us. This is also incredibly important. It's not written to us, but for us. In the first verse, when you hear that God created the heavens and earth, when you think of the earth, like what picture comes into your mind? For most people, you see this blue planet floating in space. It's a very modern conception of the term earth. The people that this was written to, when you said the word earth, they didn't think of some planet. The people who originally received this, the people to whom this was written, they were raised in what country? They were raised in Egypt. They had just come out of Egypt. Now, the Torah is going to make that clear as we read the story and go through it. Uh, But when they heard the word earth, they had the landscape of Egypt in mind. Like, that's the earth. It's not this sphere with clouds and all this kind of thing. That's a 21st century understanding. The Bible is not written to 21st century people. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. Now this is a huge statement. So as we read the Bible, we're gonna read all kinds of things. And the first thing we need to do is say, okay, whoa, whoa, pause. Who is this written to? Okay, how would they have understood that? We start there and then we move to, okay, now what does it have to say to us today. I'm not trying to read things into the Bible. I'm actually trying to be fair to the Bible and let the text speak for itself. The third point, the Bible is meant to be taken at face value. This means the Bible is an ancient text that is trying to communicate things, but the way it speaks is not based on the language and context of 2021 America. God is trying to communicate things about himself to us, and he means for us to understand. He's He's just trying to communicate, and he means for us to understand what he's saying. Like, what do I mean by face value? If I said, hey, outside, it's raining cats and dogs, I mean for you to take me at face value. And what does that mean? It means it's raining really hard. You should probably get a raincoat or get an umbrella or something like that. I don't mean for you to take me literally. Like, if you take me literally, you go outside and, like, catch a pet, a new dog, a new cat. No, I mean for you to take me at face value get something on, be prepared. It's raining really hard. Face value means that I try to understand the culture. I understand the way that language is used. So the text will say things that are literally not true, just like cats and dogs, because the Bible is meant to be taken at face value. So if we understand and accept these up front, the Bible is not about us, it's about God. The Bible is not written to us, but for us and we're in a different set of people and a different time, and the Bible is meant to be taken at face value, this will help us a ton as we're trying to understand what the text is actually trying to communicate to us. So, with this framework in mind, are you ready to read the first chapter? Okay, long story short, here we go. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, first day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit according to their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and they shall serve as signs and for seasons and for days and years, and they shall serve as lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock and crawling things, and animals of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. God made the animals of the earth according to their kind, and the livestock according to their kind, and everything that crawls on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every animal of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And so the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their heavenly lights. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work which God had created and made." What a wonderful way to start the story of the Bible. Fantastic piece of ancient literature by the creation of the world, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. But in this famous chapter, the author is clearly indicating that God is the great creator God of all things. But one of the questions most people have to wrestle with when you read a chapter like this is do I really believe that? Like a hundred years ago, this chapter was kind of accepted as fact in most circles, but now there seems to be this dichotomy that's been set up of, well, you can either believe the Bible or you can believe science. And I think that viewpoint creates a false dichotomy because you can believe both in science and the Bible at the same time. Now, we could go into some deep study on the different interpretations of Genesis chapter one. I know you want to, right? There are the concordists who would say that God made the earth using the sequence of events found in Genesis one. You've got young earth and old earth and gap and day age and appearance of age interpretations. Then you've got the non-concordists who would say that God created the earth using different timing and different order than the events described in Genesis chapter one. Those would include proclamation day, creation poem, kingdom and temple, ancient near Eastern cosmology, right? And I know since we've got a diverse group of very smart people, it's likely we have different people in different camps. And what an opportunity to talk and to learn from each other. And while there are quite a few deep rabbit holes we could travel down and lots of cups of tea to enjoy while enjoying fun conversations about these topics, that's not the path I want to take today. So if you're worried, take take a breath, it's okay. If you are interested in some of these uh, other ways of reading the text, we're going to post some links on the website and Facebook group uh, to different articles you might find helpful. So instead of going through all of these views, talking strengths and weaknesses of each this morning. I just want to give you my view as I have studied it over the years. And then you can kind of take it or leave it, think about it, whatever you want to do. Because I know in five years, my reading on this is going to continue to grow as I'm studying and learning. So this is where I am today, right now. So regardless of where we might differ, I think the text will teach us about God's sovereignty, the goodness of creation, the honored status of humankind as image bearers of our God. So let's agree. This can be a difficult couple of chapters, these creation narratives. So what does it say? First of all, it doesn't seem to me that Genesis 1 is written in the the language of science. Uh, People in science don't talk like this. For example, when the text says in verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Like what do we call light? We call it light. We call it photons. Nobody in science classroom is going to call it day. God's doing something here, but it may not be what we think or what we want it to say. So when you read through the text, it doesn't look like he's speaking in the language of science. When he speaks about the moon and the sun, we read in verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. Now when he refers to the lesser light, we would know he's talking about the moon. But no scientist is going to refer to the moon as a light. Like we might in romantic literature or songs, but as scientists, they're going to call it a rock. It's just a rock. It reflects light. It's not a light itself. And what's this thing about the expanse or the vault? Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were below, from the, uh, below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. But what is this expanse thing? Well, it's translating this Hebrew word rakia. And rakia is like a solid thing that the ancients used to think was over the earth. But this is the ancient Near Eastern view of the world. When they thought of the earth, they didn't think of a globe. When we think of a globe, again, that's a very modern understanding. The ancients would not have thought about that. Remember, the Bible is not written to us, certainly for us, but not to us. It's written to a people who really thought there was like this vault above, and God calls the vault sky. And all I'm trying to say in this section is this. It doesn't seem like, when you read this, when you, you read about a vault that you're writing in modern language of science. Now, second, it doesn't seem like a straightforward historical account. One of those indicators is this repeated phrase that divides up the day. It was evening and morning, first day. It was evening and morning, second day, third day, fourth day, and so on. There are these divisions. But then the thing that divides the evening and the morning, that's not made until the fourth day. So you wonder, like, what's up with that? Uh, it's right in the text. All I'm saying is that it doesn't seem like the way in which we would write a historical account is the way we read this. We would put the dividers first, and then the divisions would follow that. This is what Bruce Fauci has to say. If this is a straightforward historical account, God created evening, morning, and days without luminaries, and then created the luminaries in order to affect them. Are we really to conclude that the division occurs without the dividers? It seems reasonable to assume that the narrator has offered a dischronologized presentation of the events in order to emphasize a theological point. God is not dependent on the luminaries. The narrator's concern is not scientific or historical, but theological. So I think Walkie is on to something here. Just as you read the account, it's like there's this bigger point that's going on here. And then if we continue to read in chapter 2, then our questions would just increase about this historical thing because there's a difference between chapters 1 and chapters 2. In Genesis 1, God creates the plants, the marine animals, the birds, the land, and then man and woman at the same time. And then in Genesis chapter 2, he creates man first, then the plants, land, animals, birds, and then finally the woman from the man's side. So all I'm saying is this. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, it doesn't seem like it's written in the language of science. It doesn't seem like a straightforward historical account. And I think there are indicators in the text that show us that. So if that's what I don't think is going on, what do I think is happening in Genesis chapter 1? I think the author is trying to answer one question. Who is our God? That's basically it. This is the beginning of five books called the Torah. And these people have just come out of Egypt and they've had all kinds of different gods placed before them. And that's what we're going to read about in the weeks to come. We're going to read about the nation of Israel, who these people are. And this is the answer to their question of who is our God. It's not the God Ra or some other deity. Our God is the great God who creates order out of chaos, light out of darkness, life out of nothing. I mean, he is the great creator God. And I think a better view of Genesis 1 is to say it's not primarily about creation. It's about the creator. So maybe instead of labeling it like the creation story, we should start saying the creator story. I mean, read the text. It's all about God. He's the first and most important character. He's doing all the work. God created, God said, God saw, God separated, God called, God made, God blessed, God worked, God completed, God rested. The text emphasizes how great God is. All he has to do is speak, and it was so. Notice how brief it is about creation. It doesn't even really say much about creation. You can read the whole thing in like six minutes from chaos to order, emptiness to filled, wasteland to completion, six minutes. That's not a whole lot of time. And it just wraps everything up. I mean, look in verse 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. The stars are like an afterthought. Like, I want to know more. Like, how did this happen? That's so interesting. And it's just, he also made the stars. If he was really trying to write about all creation and help us understand that, he would have to say more about these things, but that's not what he's doing. It's really more about the Creator than it is the creation. So you see this repetition. That's why I read the whole chapter. I wanted you to feel and to see these repetitive movements. There's the announcement, the commandments, the separation, the naming, the report, the evaluation. Now, in other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, there's usually a conflict between the gods and some great battle ensues and creation is birthed out of that. But Yahweh, he just says something, and it was so. God creates order out of chaos. He moves into the sphere and he speaks and things take place. That's who our God is. And the author is trying to answer that question of who is our God? What I think is taking place in Genesis 1 is more about functional origins rather than material origins. It's trying to answer how our life is ordered, like the weather and time, like the daily things we go through. He's answering the question according to the way the ancient people would have thought. Now, I know this is tough, so let's use an illustration. This is a picture of our house. This is straight off of Zillow. This is the first picture we saw of our house when we started looking around. Now, I could tell you two stories about this picture. I can tell you a story about the origin of my house in a material way. So I can talk about the fact that this land once belonged to Native Americans who would roam on it and then the trees were cut down and the land was farmed and then there were other trees cut down and brought over and pieced together to make this frame and uh, bricks were brought in and wire was pulled and plumbing was laid. And I could talk about contractors and carpenters and plumbers, and there would be a story about the creation of that house that answered materialistic questions. Or I could tell you a story about the creation of our home. Is it a house story or is it a home story that I'm going to tell you? It's a home story. Like a home story is completely different because I wasn't around when the trees were cut or the foundation was laid. But Jenna and I, we saw this house and it was already built when we bought it. And we come into different rooms and we go, hey, I think this room would be good for this. I think this room would be good for that. So Jenna would say, this should be a bedroom. And it was so. You know, We put a bed in it and it was so. And we would go in here and I'd say, this should be a playroom. And we put toys in it and it was so. And when we first walked in for the first time, this house was tohu vavohu. It was wild and waste, formless and empty. The paint was not good. The smell was not good. The former owners were grandparents who loved their family so much, they hung up thousands of pictures on the wall with these straight pins, and they were so kind to leave them when they moved out. So the environment we started with was chaos, darkness over the surface of the whole thing. And then we came in and we name and we separate bed in this room. We don't put a bed in the playroom, that would be bad. We separate one room for the from the other and we fill each room to bring it function. We name it. We're creating a home. What I'm saying is it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but it seems to me Genesis 1, if you follow the text, is a home story because the emphasis is on all the naming and separating and filling. When you read through the text, you get this impression of ordered function. First day is time. Second day is the sky, the place for weather. The third day is food. Fourth day, lights are put in the sky. Fifth day, water is filled with creatures and the sky with birds. The sixth day, land produces living creatures and humans are made in the image of God. And the seventh day, God rests. Now I look at this and I think, what do most people talk about all the time? Whether you live in our culture or some ancient Near Eastern culture, most people talk about the weather. Like, how's the weather? Most people talk about what we're going to eat today. Where are we going for lunch? Most people talk about time. What are we going to do today? These are the things people talk about. And where did all this come from? God. God creates all those things. This is the fabric of our life. And I think Genesis 1 is a home story. Like, where do we get the weather? We got it from God. Where do we get food? We got it from God. Where do we get this call of work and responsibility in our life? It's the image of God in you. Now, could God make the material universe out of nothing? Absolutely. And I think John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 actually says that. But that's not the story in Genesis 1. Because in Genesis 1, like the very second verse, the earth is there. It's already there. It's formless and empty. And we think, well, that's not a good place for humans to live. It has no order. And so God brings order out of the chaos. It's a home story. And then as we read through Genesis 1, we come to the end, the climax of it all. And sometimes it's the part we just skip over. It's this part about God resting. Did you notice it at the end of the narrative? And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And so the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their heavenly lights. By the seventh day... God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now we read that in our culture and go, wow, I guess he was tired. No, like read the Bible, God doesn't get tired. That's not what's taking place there. In the ancient world, if you read about a deity resting, deities only rested in one place, the temple. God is building a temple. He's building a temple. Now, it's very interesting in Revelation chapter 22, you get to the very end of the Bible. We're set to read that on New Year's Eve, like a year from now. But here's a preview. It's the whole temple again. The whole cosmos is his temple. And he's sitting in the very center of it. And here, he's resting in the world. That that means he is in control. Now I know the idea of this being a home story and not a house story may be new for some of us. And it's not the picture I was given growing up in church. And you may be thinking, man, 2020 did a number on Jeff. He's been locked up at home too long. He's reading too many books. Like there's no temple. I don't see that here. Here's the difficulty we talked about at the beginning. The Bible is not written to us. It's written for us, not to us. And I'm saying the people in this culture All of these words would signal to them something about a deity and a temple. But what does divine rest entail? Well, most of us think of rest as disengagement from the cares, worries, and tasks of life. What comes to mind is like sleeping in or taking an afternoon nap. But in the ancient world, rest is what results when a crisis has been resolved or when stability has been achieved, when things have settled down. And because of this, normal routines can be established and enjoyed. So for deity, this means that the normal operations of the cosmos can be undertaken. This is more a matter of engagement without obstacles rather than disengagement without responsibilities. So rest meant he was in control. It meant that to them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that to us today. So let me give you an illustration. If I said, Joe Biden is ready to sit in the Oval Office... What does that mean? Like that one sentence is loaded with meaning, and it probably stirs up different emotions in people. But you understand what that sentence means. I'm talking about someone who's going to be in control. He's going to be president of the most powerful nation in the world. Now, where did you get that? It's from those words. He's going to sit in the Oval Office. You get it. Because those words are loaded with meaning in our culture. But what about like 2,000 years from now, somebody digs up some newspaper or news article about the Oval Office, they'd say, well, I guess that's just somebody sitting down in a room that was kind of not round. And some historian would have to come along and say, no, 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 like that's not what this is about. The Oval Office meant the United States, this like position of power. And that day they're talking about the White House, they're talking about presidential power. You sit in the Oval Office, it means you're in control. When you rest in a temple it means you're in control. It doesn't mean that to us, but it meant that in that culture. That's exactly what it meant. God has created everything to be his temple, and he is in the very center of his temple. And he's created human beings to be like priests and priestess for him to serve him in that temple. And he's going to give them instructions about what to do to have harmony in this whole temple because it's all about God, and he's the center of all things. This is what I'm saying. This is my view, that these narratives are not a dialogue with scientific ideas about materialistic origins. We might want them to be, but I don't think that's what's going on here. They're a dialogue with Egyptian, Babylonian, Canaanite ideas about the functional origins of our lives. This chapter is answering these questions. Where did time and weather and food come from? Why are we here? Who is our God? That's what I think is going on in Genesis 1. It's a story about home. And when we think of Genesis 1 as an account of material origins or a house story, creation becomes an action that's in the past, that's over and done with. God made objects and now the cosmos exists materially. But viewing Genesis 1 as an account of functional origins or a home story offers more opportunity for understanding that God's creative work continues on even into today. This is the beginning of a long story but it starts with God. We live in a world that is a mess, and we're gonna see that in the story too. But it focuses on a God who is extremely powerful, who creates light out of darkness, who brings life out of death, who brings good out of evil. He is amazing. And as we read this book this year, every day we're gonna be encouraged by this God, because this God loves us.
0: That's it for today. Thank you for joining us on our journey through the Bible this year, and we hope that you will join us again next week.